0: Welcome to Education Beat. I'm Ann Vasquez, Executive Director at EdSource. California's juvenile justice system is at a crossroads. Its state-run youth prisons are shutting down in less than two years, thanks to legislation signed into law last year by Governor Gavin Newsom. Counties can no longer send young people to those prisons as the state seeks to reform a system that currently houses more than 3,600 youth in juvenile halls, camps, and ranches. Many of those in the system are former public school students like Kent Mendoza, who was incarcerated when he was 15. He's now part of a growing movement to reimagine juvenile halls and camps. He wishes they were more like college campuses.
1: I'm a million-dollar youth. That's at least a million dollars that the system spent on my incarceration for a whole five years. And what did I get out of that? Trauma, pain, you know, all these scars where it could have been degrees. It could have been, I probably wrote my own book by now.
0: What role can education play in California's juvenile justice system? And how can reform change the lives of young people? Here is this week's Education Beat with host Zadie Stabling.
2: Kent Mendoza's family immigrated to Los Angeles from Mexico when he was six. He felt lonely and disconnected, and he struggled in school. He never learned how to read until he was in eighth grade.
1: I used to see kids that knew how to read, and I was the only one that didn't know how to read. So to me, that always messed me up mentally as a kid. And on top of that, just imagine, damn, I don't know how to read. People are making fun of me. I don't even want to read. It's a shame, 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 and embarrassment as an immigrant kid. And then you don't even know how to speak English, so you're even more embarrassed. So all that is just, and then you don't have a father. So to me, all that really is a combination of feelings that were just in my mind, messing with me, my psychological, right?
2: When Kent was 14, he found a group of other teens that were going through many of the same things. They were in a gang.
1: They were just like me. They were all immigrants. They all were living only with their mother. They had no fathers in their lives, and they all were from Mexico, Salvador, or Guatemala. And they didn't know how to speak English. And we all were the the, the kids that people were like try to mess up like punk or something, right? But then eventually we revolted. Like, what the hell? the like, hell no! So we ended up jo- finding ways to to filling that gaps that we miss in our dad gaps, or, or we're feeling dumb. Oh, well, you know what? All these people feel the same way.
2: The trouble he got into was small at first. Ditching school, smoking marijuana, a little graffiti.
1: I was just getting arrested for little things, you know, at first. And, you know, those things eventually ended up becoming worse over time. But I think it was just, you know, in and out in the juvenile hall, my mom coming to pick me up at the police station or stuff like that. It wasn't, like, for things that any young kid that has no proper guidance will be getting in trouble too, right? But then, uh, obviously, as you start progressing in, in in that type of lifestyle, the crimes and offenses become more serious and the penalties become harsher.
2: Kent ended up arrested and sentenced for robbery when he was 15 years old. He spent 18 months on one sentence. But he says he didn't learn much or get inspired to change while incarcerated. And when he got out, he kept getting in trouble. Just a month later, he was arrested on new charges and detained once again. In total, he spent five years incarcerated and didn't get out until he was 20. Today, Kent is 28, and he's the manager of advocacy and community organizing for the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. He works to change how juvenile justice is set up. He wants there to be more rehabilitation. He wants people to believe in kids' ability to change, and he wants better education. Inside the juvenile halls and camps where Kent was, he had school, but this is how he remembers it.
1: To me, I felt like in school, it was more of a place where everything bad happened, you know, all the tension, all the fights, all that. So whenever, like, I was in juvenile hall, in, in, in central juvenile hall, or, you know, I didn't want to be in class, you know, I wanted to get out of there. Why? Because the teachers kind of didn't know what the heck they were doing, or they were just easy to push around, you know? And, and what I saw was that all they did was give out packages, be like, oh, here, read this package and copy it and to, to another page. And, you know, I never really saw, like, no quality in the education, and, you know, and if anything, it's like, I feel like the the teachers were just, uh, I don't know if they were not passionate.
2: And on top of all of that, he had to worry about violence.
1: You know, every time I was in class, you know, I had to deal with people wanting to fight me, you know, I had to deal with people wanting to diss my gang, and, and you know, and it was like headaches, honestly, just having headaches all day. And so I really didn't get anything out of any education while I was incarcerated.
2: One experience Kent had there showed him that maybe it wasn't just him, that maybe if he was given opportunities to tap into what he was interested in, he could even enjoy learning. A group came in to hold a debate about cloning.
1: And you had to pick a side, like pros and cons, you know, and, and I remember, to me, that was an amazing experience because when I learned about the, the, the cloning and biology, I became nerd, and I was, literally, I was a gang member at this point. I literally was curious about this stuff. I was like, what is cloning? And I started asking my teacher, and I told teacher, to let me be the, the debater. And then they literally had a debate in the gym, you know, and then uh, I never experienced those types of things, but I think, like, those are the types of things that we need to be seeing more of, you know. It was a glimpse of quality experience of something like that. So to me, that was something that I remember, that I still recall to this day, that I learned about biology. Those things, you know, they... Something in that time tapped in my curiosity.
2: This is Education Beat, getting to the heart of California schools. I'm Zadie Stavely. This week, educating incarcerated youth. Kent Mendoza is a passionate advocate for reforming the juvenile justice system in California. I met him through my colleague, Betty Marquez Rosales who is starting a new beat on juvenile justice and education at EdSource.
3: Hi, Betty. Hi, Zadie.
2: Betty, you recently wrote about how California is trying to overhaul completely their juvenile justice system and some of the challenges. Um, And so what I understood from the story is that basically California passed a law that requires all youth prisons to be shut down by 2023. And therefore, Counties will no longer be able to send young people to prisons, rather they have to house them in their own facilities, which are usually, you know, juvenile halls or camps, right? But some of the ideas to create these more home-like environments haven't played out. Can you explain what's going on?
3: Right. So Senate Bill 823 does exactly what you just mentioned. And so one of the issues which Los Angeles County is certainly experiencing right now is zeroing in on which facility might be the least restrictive in terms of not focusing on punitive measures or having a system of punishment and instead focusing on it being more home like and focusing on care and rehabilitation. The large problem here is that many of the facilities that currently exist at county levels, they were created before these ideas really started going more into the mainstream. The idea of providing rehabilitation for young people who've been charged with committing crimes versus having a sort of more punitive approach.
2: And it sounds like there were two camps in in Los Angeles County that were being considered, but so far nobody has been moved into those camps. Is that right?
3: Right. That idea received quite a bit of community opposition because they're were fears from local residents that housing this group of young people near their homes might lead to a potential rise in crime. Um, There was concern over lack of transparency in choosing those camps, and so that idea was scrapped. Um, And after some more back and forth, they decided on Campus Kilpatrick. It's been around for some time, but it was reopened in 2017 under a different design. The idea really aligns with the intent of Senate Bill 823 um, in that young people, rather than being housed in sort of these separate dormitories and units, they're housed in groups um, of, I believe, 8 to 12 at a time, and they receive group therapy.
2: Um, But have people been sent to that camp yet?
3: The issue right now is that while that back and forth was happening, and while a temporary and or permanent location was chosen, they've actually been incarcerated at Barry J. Nydorf, which in September, a regulatory agency found that specific juvenile hall to be, quote, unsuitable for the confinement of minors. Since it was founded nine years ago, it's the first time that the board has issued such a finding. And it included both of the juvenile halls that are in L.A. County. And one of them is where about 20 young people who prior to Senate Bill 823 would have been sent to the state. They've actually been incarcerated at Barry J. Neidorf. Actually can spent some time at Barry J. Nydorf when, when he was younger.
2: So let's talk a little bit about Barry J. Neidorf. So there was also a complaint filed in California Superior Court. In January, because of a two year u s Department of Justice investigation, and what did that investigation find?
3: The investigation found that the juvenile hall staff they were using excessive force, young people in the juvenile hall were not being provided with appropriate bedding with appropriate access to bathrooms they were you know denying youth access to to those kind of basic needs and they were also failing to provide the legally required education services.
2: And so for those people who are still in the state youth prisons, what kind of education is being offered to
3: them? So each of the state youth prisons have a high school and these high schools, uh, they also offer some vocational courses, some community college courses, depending on the age. And so while those sort of education programs exist, their test results offer some insight into the level of achievement that they can attain while being incarcerated. I'll share one, one statistic that really stood out to me. In 2018, none of the students at any of the three correctional facilities at the state level, none of them scored proficient in math on the state's Smarter Balanced Assessment exam. Um, and then this is data from the California Department of Education. And in reading at one of the high schools in the correctional facilities, of students scored proficient in reading. And at the other two schools, it was 3% of students who scored proficient in reading. And so that offers some insight into the opportunities that, you know, young students have while incarcerated.
2: When Kent was incarcerated, what made a really big difference was that he met a mentor, someone who had been through similar experiences, who visited juvenile halls every weekend to talk with the kids inside. That person gave Kent hope.
1: All my life, I I felt outcast. I felt lonely. And the reason why I did some of the things that I did is because as an immigrant, you feel lonely and and outcast. like you're incapable of things. You know, your self-esteem is very low. When you have people that start believing in you, even when you don't believe in yourself, uh, to me, that's really what started keeping me hopeful and, 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 you know, planting that seed in me. And to me, it was just like literally having people that don't give up on you, you know. And to me, it was a mentor that was there from the day that I got locked up into the day I got out and they was able to see me and never gave up on me. And then not only that, but through that person, I have extended my, my support system. And I guess just feeling value, feeling knowing that even though I'm in this place, there's people that are waiting to, for me to, to, to come home and and support and to, and to support me.
2: What stood out to you about Kent or what made you think that his story is powerful?
1: Ken is really passionate about
3: Having credible messengers in youth prisons um, and having credible messengers really be connected to anybody who might be involved in the juvenile justice system.
2: By credible messenger, do you mean somebody who the young person will be able to trust and believe when they when they guide them or give them advice?
3: Yes, that's exactly right. It's someone who maybe they've had similar experiences in the past. And so that, that really stood out because he shared his story of spending time in facilities that were not conducive to rehabilitation. Instead, what it, his change really came down to a credible messenger who was in his life years before he decided to turn things around. And that person was also there the day that he walked out of the last prison that he was in.
2: So Kent made his own way to educate himself. He read books that he found in the library, not because they were assigned to him in school. He read about Nelson Mandela and Gandhi, and he read a book called Earning Freedom by Michael Santos about getting through a long prison term. He did graduate from high school while he was in juvenile hall, but then he felt he had no way of continuing his education further. Kent has a vision for how he would like juvenile halls and camps to look. He wants them to look and function more like college campuses.
1: You know, when we look at the carceral systems, the way they're set up, the way the facilities are built, they all look like jails. They all look not welcoming. they all look very depressing. You know, they don't provide a sense of of, of of happiness or fun, right? And I know that it's a place of supposed to hold young people accountable. And also at the same time, when we're talking about holding people accountable, like we can't forget that they're young people. So I think that to ensure that this we're really going to help young people is like we need to create facilities or places that are not jail like feeling like type of places you know like what if like these places don't look more like a college campus type of environment where you know the kid that is probably there because he robbed something maybe he's going to do nine months there but maybe in those nine months maybe he's going to be doing a trade program at the same time at the same time that he's going to healthy relationships, workshops at the same time that he's going through uh, credible messenger trainings there where he's learning from people like me who've been there that can be guiding them on life experiences or anything, education, that they're also probably, they might be knocking out a, a, a trade at the same time. Maybe by the time they're done, they're already certified in cutting hair or something, you know, I think that we shouldn't be building systems or creating places where it's just for the young people to kill time. We need to be building the young people's competencies so when they come home, whether they're 17, 18, 19, that they're already going to be either continuing the pathway in in the education or in trades or contributing economically. It makes Kent wonder, what would it have
2: been like for him if his experience inside had been different? If it had been like a college campus, with all the support and opportunities that exist there, what if the money spent on incarcerating Kent had been spent on educating him?
1: I'm a million-dollar youth. That's at least a million dollars that the system spent on my incarceration for a whole five years. And what did I get out of that? Trauma, pain, solitary confinement, pepper spray, you know, all these scars where it could have been degrees, it could have been uh, I, probably read, I probably wrote my own book by now, you know, the, there's things that we could be building off and we're not even looking at those basic things that are literally right in front of us.
2: Kent, also, is there something that schools and teachers can do before students, you know, get involved in the juvenile justice system? Is there something that you think that, you know, your teachers or schools could have done to help prevent you from joining a gang and from, you know, getting involved and then having to go back and all of that?
1: I feel that the problem with schools, teachers, uh, faculty folks, and people that run schools is that sometimes they don't understand the young people that they are going to this stuff. Like, if I'm going to class and I'm showing up high, if I'm showing up mad, if I'm not doing my homework, why aren't you not questioning? Why aren't you checking up on the kid? Why aren't you like, maybe the t- it's not the teacher's job, but at the end of the day, you're a teacher and you're supposed to be helping the young person. So it kind of is. Maybe the t- teachers, the faculty needs to start thinking of other ways of addressing this. If you have a kid who has... Disabilities. We do things to address those disability issues. If we have a young person that doesn't know how to English, we try to provide them an ESL teacher or they, you know, put them in those classes. Right? there's ways that we do try to adapt other young people. But when we talk about kids that are probably going through trauma, maybe you know they don't know that you know I'm missing my dad. And I and, and as a kid, you you lacking that that piece. You know, that's a big important piece in your life. So I think that there has to be a piece where students, teachers are just trained or. Maybe they bring people like me, that can teach the teachers. Another layer of kind of like training to the staff. If you're training them how to work with sheriffs or probation officers, and train them how to work with community members that that understand these young people. And it's bring incredible messengers to your school. Let them work there. There's a lot of people that are, went through the carceral system, they changed their life and they're educators too who are into school. Maybe these people also need to be working in these places. Like if we see a young kid struggling, we need to figure out how do we support this young person, not just punish him and get him in trouble because he's not doing his homework, but why is he struggling, you know? And I just feel like that's the solution, having more understanding of these young people and having people that can teach teachers about this stuff.
2: Betty, I'm really excited that you're on this beat. Do you want to share any of the stories that you're planning for the next few months?
3: Some of the stories that we really want to focus on is diving deeper into this question of education at both the state youth prisons and at county probation camps, county juvenile halls. What are the opportunities that young students are uh, being offered? What are their test results? What are their experiences in whichever facility they may be in? And really when it comes down to it, the priority with covering juvenile justice, it comes down to sharing the experiences of the people who've been in any of the facilities and, and better understanding those experiences to be able to share them with our readers.
2: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Education Beat, Getting to the Heart of California Schools, a production of EdSource. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Special thanks to Kent Mendoza, Betty Marquez Rosales, and our director, Ann Vasquez. Our theme music is from Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was brought to you by the California Wellness Foundation. I'm Zadie Stapley. Join me next week, and don't forget to subscribe.